Today in Science from Wired. This episode is brought to you by ShipStation. You know, some things take a lot of work, like sending little robots to far off distant planets. And just as that's challenging, so too is running a successful e-commerce business, especially when there's so much to do. So I want to introduce you all to ShipStation. Now, I love using ShipStation because of its easy-to-use dashboard, which makes managing orders and printing labels a breeze and super smooth. Oh, and the customer service is just out of this world. It's exactly what you need to help grow your business. Sign up for your free 60-day trial at ShipStation.com slash technews. That's ShipStation.com slash technews. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Today in Science from Wired. How to make a Fitbit for an elephant. The accelerometers give scientists information about whether animals are swimming, walking, running, or even sprinting up a hill. By Sarah Harrison. When Daniela Chuseed was in graduate school at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, She noticed that many of her colleagues used step counters like Fitbits to study obesity and activity among people. And she wondered if she could use the same method in her own research, which examines how obesity and metabolism affect reproductive health. But there was one big difference. Daniela studies elephants. Unlike researchers who focus on humans, Daniela couldn't use consumer fitness trackers that were ready to go right out of the box. For one, obviously, elephants are giant, so she had to actually design a mounting system that would fit these step counters, also called accelerometers, that it would fit them firmly but comfortably around the elephant's ginormous legs. And she says they were pretty massive. What fits around their wrist or ankle fits around my waist. So Daniela designed large adjustable bracelets and used lots of zip ties to secure the device, and they put them inside waterproof boxes and wrapped them in a bunch of industrial-strength plastic bags so they were protected from elephantine bathing habits. And after everything was waterproofed and wrapped and secured, these bracelets weighed like six or seven pounds each. And for the most part, the zoo animals were pretty down to count their steps. But Daniela did lose one device. An elephant used its trunk to rip it off and step on it. Daniela is now a postdoctoral fellow at the School of Public Health at Indiana University. And she says that because this was such a novel use of these devices, she had to validate all the data by watching the elephants walk around. She counted their steps, measured their stride lengths, and then matched those observations with the accelerometer's data. And it took hours to make sure the sensors were accurate and to figure out the right signatures in the data that pinpointed when the animals were walking or digging. But even with all that, Daniela says the sensors produced some pretty incredible data that researchers wouldn't otherwise be able to get. She says you gain insight into animal behavior that you wouldn't be privy to otherwise because it's impossible to follow them 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, or see them all the time because of their environment. 
Now, Daniela and other scientists don't use commercial counters like the Apple Watch or the Fitbit, but the technology is essentially the same. Step counters are triaxial accelerometers, and they use these electromagnetic sensors to pick up movements across three planes. So if a wearer's foot moves up and down, or side to side, or backwards and forwards, the device senses that movement and then interprets it as a step. And over the last 20 years, many animal researchers have discovered that accelerometers can be used for far more than notching up step counts. The devices have been used to study penguins, cormorants, badgers, pumas, and even polar bears. Rory Wilson says the thing about accelerometry is it allows you to look at animal behavior. Now, Rory is a professor of aquatic biology at Swansea University, and he says these sensors can help provide information about whether animals are swimming or walking or running or even sprinting up a hill. And they give scientists important proxy measurements about how much energy animals are using up during these activities. He said for someone who works with animals in the wild and half the time you can't see them, you have a really powerful tool, amazingly powerful tool. Rory first heard about accelerometers in 1999 when Ken Yoda, who is a professor of behavior and evolution at Nagoya University in Japan, he published a paper in the Journal of Experimental Biology about actually using the devices to track swimming penguins. And Rory was skeptical. He says, I sort of remember saying to someone, yeah, it's quite cute, but I don't see how that would be useful. But he slowly came around. He started using the sensors to study the angle at which seals dive into the water. Then he started to get curious about using the devices to gather data that could infer animals' energy expenditure. He says, energy expenditure is the money for an animal. How much money have you got? How much energy have you got? How hard do you have to work to get energy back? Now, understanding energy expenditure can help scientists understand how well animals are doing and whether they're going to be able to hunt, reproduce, and survive. By now, Rory has used accelerometers to study all sorts of animals, including sea turtles and sheep, bats, hawks, and penguins. He combines this accelerometer data with inputs from other sensors that measure things like temperature, magnetic force, and geolocation, and it helps to understand exactly what the animal is doing and where it is. Like, for example, this technology lets him track penguins as they sit on their nests, then get up, waddle to the ocean, and dive in. And his sensors stay on the animals for weeks, and after he retrieves the devices, he can just follow along as the penguins swim and dive and fish, all from thousands of miles away. He's gotten so good at reading the data, he can even start to understand details of the animal's physical state. Like, he can tell when the penguins are full of fish because that changes how they waddle. Or he can tell when a horse is starting to walk over some tricky terrain. He says, that's really cool stuff. And just like Daniela, Rory's become pretty well-versed in figuring out how to attach these accelerometers to animals and making sure the sensors will survive the data collection process. With penguins and birds, he'll stick this special tape under their back feathers, and that creates this little waterproof pocket that he puts the tracker in. He's used magnetic and spring-based clips to attach sensors to shark's fins, when he studied sheep urination, he cut little holes in the wool on the animal's rear ends and then glued the sensors into their coats and repacked the pockets with tufts of shaved wool. For sloths, he used a harness. And for bats, he used rubber cement 
to stick the accelerometers to their leathery skin. Now, for Anthony Pagano, who's a postdoctoral researcher who works with the U.S. Geological Survey, accelerometers have helped shine some light on the activity of polar bears living north of Alaska. And it's given insights that are basically impossible for humans to observe. Anthony says, We have a lot of detailed information about changes in body mass and survival rates, but we don't have very much information about basic movement patterns and what their basic behaviors are on the sea ice. Now, as I'm sure you know, polar bears live in extreme and remote environments. I mean, temperatures can shift from like 40 degrees below zero up to 30 degrees above zero. And the bears are diving in and out of frigid saltwater oceans and hanging out on ice flows and tramping around on solid ground, too. So Anthony finally had to encase the accelerometers in some epoxy to make them waterproof. Then he mounted them in an aluminum housing and bolted the whole thing to tracking collars around the bears' necks. And just like Daniela, he had to figure out what the patterns in the data meant by putting trackers on bears in captivity, observing them, and then matching up those observations with the data from the wild animals. Between figuring out the right bolting system and validating the data, it took Anthony a year to get ready to put the devices on bears in Alaska. Now, accelerometers do have some limitations, and because Anthony has to use collars to attach his sensors, he can only tag female bears. See, male bears have necks that are larger than their heads, so a collar just slips off. And it's really important where you put the sensor on the animal, especially if they want to study a particular motion or a behavior. First, Anthony wanted to find movement patterns that could identify when the bears were killing and eating seals. But because he had to put the accelerometers on neck collars, the sensors haven't been able to find distinct signature patterns for those killing and eating movements because those motions are happening in other parts of the body, like the hands and the feet. So maybe if they attach the accelerometers to the bear's paws, they would be able to find that data. But there are just too many other head movements that the animals make for the sensors to pick up hunting and eating specific signals. And Rory points out that accelerometers lose a certain environmental perspective because they can't tell you if there are other animals around the one you're observing. It might be useful to know if a particular or unusual motion is happening because the animal is standing in a crowd, or maybe watching another animal approach. And two, these devices are limited by how much data they can store, and of course, battery life. They don't relay information in real time like GPS does, so the researchers have to go collect them after six weeks or so, and they gather the data and recharge the batteries. Still, Anthony Pagano says the sensors have been great for identifying when polar bears are swimming or walking or resting and how much energy they're using to do all those activities. And this is the all-important information that will help researchers start to make predictions about how well the bears might do in the future as their habitats change. And the devices allow humans to observe animals without affecting their environments in ways that could potentially influence the animal's behavior. Danielle Brown says that observing animals by eye is traditionally the gold standard for researchers. She's a lecturer in the biology department at Middle Tennessee State University, and she's actually used accelerometers to study anteaters. She says, but we have this problem that as soon as we're there, we're changing their behavior. See, a human presence might discourage predators from approaching or make the animals hesitant to relax. And Danielle says there's a lot of behaviors that are very context dependent. When humans are there, that changes the context. 
And she also says that even though accelerometers may miss some behaviors, they might also pick up on movements the human eye doesn't catch, either because they're subtle or rare, or maybe they just happen in the dark. So, as technological advances make these accelerometers and their batteries smaller and longer-lasting, and scientists start to pair them with other sensors, Rory Wilson believes the device will become more and more pervasive in research. He says, I think the most important thing to understand about accelerometers is that we haven't begun to scratch what we can do with them. Like what you learned? Subscribe everywhere you listen to podcasts and get more science news at wired.com science. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.